Hey-ho, tutor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tutor Time Machine, and this is episode 27 of our podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you're new here, it's best to start at episode one. This is a story project, and it goes in order. We've had such an amazing time researching it and working on it. And bringing it to you, our listeners from all over the world. It's so wonderful for us. No, we're so thrilled that you're enjoying the story and also our history tidbits. And we do hope you'll support us digitally. And buy me a coffee. Buy me a coffee. Type in buy me a coffee as one word and then Tudor Time Machine into your search engine and you can find our page. Or the shop button on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page will zip you there. And we also hope you'll join our community on Facebook and get in on the Tudor-minded fun. All our gratitude for taking this journey with us. In our last episode, we saw Anne and Wyatt heating it up, but now we're back to Constance and her very proscribed duties. Court is a tightrope, and if Constance falls... Don't give anything away. (laughs) Read on, Jesse. Chapter 27. The Chapel at Whitehall, in which Wyatt's grandson makes a scene, and Charles Paget a strange proposal. If Constance were to actually vomit into the Book of Common Prayer, the ladies around her would gasp, grooms would run in to help her, and she would have to lie. She could not say, This profane service makes me ill. She would have to say, I ate rotten fruit, or, Oh, I slept badly. Her previous mistress, the Lady Marquess of Northampton, had made a gift of the book, and she was lucky for that. It was pricey, this devil book, but grinding it under her heel or holding it upside down as she wished she could would be courting trouble. She moved her lips in unison with the congregation. Jesus, it made her shudder, beseeching God in the everyday English she used to call for a chamber pot. Philomena was fortunate she did not have to endure this ugly ceremony. She only had to step out her door to that St. Mary LeBeau once a month to escape scrutiny. Probably she was able to pay her way out of doing even that. Being known at court made it impossible to dodge anything. How many of the people here secretly thought this Protestant service a mockery? Mary and Nazareth, certainly. Nazareth looked an odd color. Perhaps she too felt vomitous in the face of such language. Or she could be pregnant. Mary had made a few pointed remarks that Nazareth let slide by. Constance said a little extra prayer to the Virgin for Nazareth's safety in the childbed. And there, Lady Lee with Charles, he was not even trying to hide his scowl, while his sister was, no doubt, far more concerned with her philandering husband, standing beside her, indulging in the foul pastime of eyeing the big arse Countess of Warwick. The rest of the congregation followed the Queen's lead, if they cared about the service at all. And who knew what Princess Cecilia might think, or even in truth what religion she practiced? Constance knew the official religion of the Swedish was Protestant, but then Cecilia spent so much time in the company of the Spanish Catholics. Cecilia was an enigma in all things. She rarely turned up to the Queen's services, saying she preferred to do her devotions privately, but showed her ladies no mercy and always bid them to court. The Marquis of Northampton was oiling around Elan, seeming to pay little attention to the sermon. Bridget Skipworth, Catherine Hastings, and Lettuce Knollys were putting their heads together, no doubt about whatever bad behavior had taken place the night before. 
Under the hawk eyes of Lady Mildred and Sir William Cecil, the gents of Cecil House were pretending seriousness. Some new lads had joined their ranks, and Constance noticed with discomfort that Philomena's blackjack was with them. He looked up. No daggers were cast in her direction. At last the attendees were admonished to remember the Lord's mercy, and out they hurried toward the meagre sun on the frozen ground of the privy garden at Whitehall, knowing the next hour was theirs to enjoy. The Queen had retired to her private rooms, with only a few of her women of the bedchamber. Charles was weaving his way over to Constance with deliberation. He was too obvious, leaning over her. I feel the agitation of your soul, dear heart, amid these blasphemers, he whispered. You, a pure figure lost in hell, an angel in the inferno painted by the master Hieronymus Bosch. He showed the future in all its horror, and now we live it. In hell, heretics will be disemboweled with hot tongs, yet never receive the mercy of death. Before Constance could reply to this tirade, Cecil's wards came begging for female attention. Charles apprised the crowd, then silently gazed down into Constance's eyes with a seriousness that she could not reckon. She hoped he did not credit her with some undeserved depth. But then he spun on his heels and marched away. His body, usually so erect, seemed to be shaking. Constance felt ashamed not to follow him. He was in need of soothing, and he had been so kind to her these last weeks that she owed him attention. But she dared not go after him and risk revealing herself to those around her. Rutland said, That sanctimonious oak, Paget, casts his puppish shadow. Run, Mistress Constance. Paget will land you in the tower. She wanted to answer back. Charles was so misjudged. Rutland opened his mouth again. She was sure to ask the whereabouts of Thomason. Constance would be happy to impart that the girl was away in the country. Even Rutland would not propose following her a full day's ride outside of London. Then young Herbert, the good match, was there, cuffing him. Rutland, why do you appear at all moments? Mistress Constance, the dress of the church, suits you as well as the dress of the feast. A well-worn compliment donned by two other ladies just this morning. Rutland sniped. Oxford was trying to wrest something from Bacon, but Bacon was determined to show Constance whatever he had in his hand. It turned out to be what looked like a locket, flat and intricately carved. Bacon touched the bottom and it sprang open, revealing a clock face. It is a pocket watch! How marvellous! Constance said, enthralled. Bacon turned the watch to show the workings. It is as if they have taken a clock tower and made it small enough to fit into a coat. Oxford brayed like a donkey, causing the group to break into laughter. Let Bacon have his moment, Herbert said. Dorodai slid her arm around Constance's waist. Oh, gentlemen, is Mistress Stoner not a sneak to have become friends with all of you? We are neighbours, yet she keeps all the errands to Cecil House for herself. The sly fox, pretending the innocent eye. Who was Dorodai to rank her motive base? Constance wondered. She was at the beck and call of Rutland, Lady Elizabeth Clinton, Mildred Cecil, and for that matter Guzman de Silva and the Countess of Lennox, all of whom she would quite happily part ways with forever. She deserved at least a morsel of light conversation and innocent flirtation now and then. My lady, Oxford asked Dorodai, will you not give me your arm? Cupid's arrow has pierced my thigh. Dorodai smiled cocked her head and helped steady the limping earl. Herbert, close to Constance, reflected, 
Oxford is a poor player, is he not? His limp switches from one leg to the other. I hazard the falseness of the ploy adds to its charm, Constance said. Then I wish I had thought of it. Oh, no, for Oxford's falseness is his charm. You will have to trade in something else, sir. Herbert laughed an oddly loud laugh that surprised Constance. Then Cecilia's sister, the Princess Elizabeth, in the winning way of the Vasa, challenged, Who will be the first to read the sundial? I will give him a kiss. Elizabeth ran into the stone gallery, toward the privy garden, and the whole group followed. Coming out into the garden, Constance saw that none of the new boys had been able to claim a kiss. Instead, Catherine, Mary, and Elizabeth were gathered around the sundial, explaining the intricacies of the thirty ways the mechanism showed the time. Constance knew what was coming. Water shot from the sundial, splashing two boys and soaking the third, who took it full in the face. Lettuce popped out from where she had turned on the spigot. All the ladies fell around with a glee that never got as stale as this joke they played on anyone who would fall for it. Usually the wet man, not wanting to put off such attractive maids, took his water bath with humour. This man did not. My father lost his head, so you humiliate me! Women, damnation of mankind, who only quake before bad clothes and old age! May you all go to the devil! In answer to this, Elizabeth laughed and yelled something in Swedish that made all the Swedish ladies hoot. The boy looked over to Lettuce as if he wanted to thrash her. I will catch my death of cold. Is my death worth a moment of oafish merriment? Rutland jumped up on a statue of Demeter and, sharing her plinth, said, Now, Master George, our queen has not lopped off any heads. How can I merit your anger? Boil your loins, Rutland, you arrogant cock! You know my story. Fortune's fool, and now a fool to these empty-headed cunts! Master George exploded. What words! Herbert said as he left Constance's side, strode over and punched Master George in the face, startling the ladies and inspiring Oxford. My punch is fiercer. Oxford prepared his blow. Constance covered her eyes, but some ladies laughed as Master George used the sundial as a shield as he kicked at his opponent. Blackjack leapt forward, restraining the combatants and ending the commotion for the afternoon. Returning to Bedford House with the Swedish ladies, Constance found that their mistress, Princess Cecilia, had gone off, taking her dark cloak with her, a sure sign that she would be absent for some time. The Swedes decided on a walk in the gardens to pass the evening, but Constance made her excuses and went upstairs to write Aunt Stoner. How fortunate it would have been if she and Philomena had found something in Wyatt's desk. She had prayed and prayed for aid in its discovery but still the search was at an impasse. How often her mother had taken Constance to her family's hidden chapel, kneading her arm and mumbling as they stood before the empty space where the golden treasures once stood. Her mother had told and retold stories of the stoner's greatness before King Henry married that mad heretic, Anne Boleyn, and England had gone to hell. What sweet triumph to return Sir Thomas More's ring to Stoner House, from her place in heaven, Constance's mother would shed tears of rapture at the sight of it, and her aunt would kiss her and praise her. A relic, an English one, that faithful Catholics could come to venerate would bring such joy. Constance could imagine the stream of those flocking to Stoner Chapel in secret, crowding the doors of the sanctuary under the cover of darkness. Relics did inspire and unite, as Charles had said, and if she could find this holy thing, she would have a part in giving hope to all of the faithful. 
Finding the relic was a little trouble, yet what true quest ever unfolded easily? There were always wrong paths, always setbacks. Searching for Sir Thomas More's ring was worthy, her own quest for the Holy Grail, as if she were a knight of the round table. Poor Lancelot. Constance pitied him. He was the greatest of the knights, yet ill-fated. A glimpse of the grail was all he was worthy of. But she and Philomena were Galahad and Percival, not to be deterred. Constance, dear heart, said a voice at the window. She leapt up in sharp surprise as a blast of frigid air struck her. The silhouette of a man filled the second-story window, the moon behind his head leaving the face in shadow. Mistress, you are in a state of wonder. And the figure stepped down into the room. Charles Paget here, in her chamber, alone. He looked so untamed as he threw aside his fur cape and revealed a loose doublet. His chest was smooth, muscular. She wondered how it would be to run her hand along it. He threw himself on his knees, his eyes glassy. Constance tried to speak, hoping to calm him. But he clasped her hands, his eyes darting. She wanted to pull away, but she wanted to be close at the same time. She inflamed him. She would not be cruel. She looked down at him. His hands found her waist. Her heart pounded. You are as well made as any woman I have ever seen. His voice was hoarse and his expression virile. He pulled her to him, her head against the exposed flesh of his chest. The horrors of the heretics set my mind whipping about. I had to see you without delay. I can stand no more. I am responsible for your soul, and God has entrusted me with such a pure one. Constance, my worthy prize, we will be bonded together. He pulled her in tighter. She was on the edge of the precipice. This was the most important moment of her life. She did not feel fear. He whispered, We will be married. I will take you abroad. We will take orders. I will be a monk. You will be a nun. We will be chaste. These words jumbled in Constance's mind. No, no, my dear girl, do not be afraid, he said. I have friends who shall aid us. We will escape to Spain, a true Catholic country. The illustrious brotherhood of the true cross will welcome us. Our marriage will be one of truth, unplagued by carnal thoughts and desire. We will be as Joffrey de Gorham and Christina of Maricate, friends, partners in love for Christ. Some day you, my Constance, shall be an abbotess, and I will be an abbot. I shall dedicate a psalter to you. Our lives will be perfect. Constance wondered, did she sleep? Was this a half-life lived just before morning? But his hands on her waist, they were real. She knew in truth she was awake. You are transformed. He beamed at her. My Constance, your eyes shine, and we are in perfect accord. You shall take Christ as your husband. You shall wear his marriage ring, not mine, and he shall bless us both for our sacrifice. What were these words? She struggled to make sense of them. 
Charles Paget was here to propose they be monk and nun together? No, surely not. She did not want to be celibate. She wanted, she wanted not to be a virgin. Please, dear sir. He looked at her with mournful eyes. I witness your earthly beauty. It is God's temptation to me. Were you less enticing, I could not claim that I am brave. And do you not see how God has favoured me with these blonde curls? I see. Yes, I see them, she said. But she felt uneasy. Marriage and children were also blessings, ones that she looked to. I do not give in to the ease that my person might bring, Charles said. I fight against it. I will be a holy vessel. Together we shall live, and none but the blessed brotherhood shall know our secret. Without children, she would be suspected of being barren. That would bring pity. Constance did not want pity. She wanted children. She wanted to remain in England. She wanted a real husband. She wanted Charles Paget to be as he had seemed. Kind, serious, with a nice chest and good hair. A tear dropped out of her eye. You are touched. You sympathize as I knew you should, Charles said. Constance pushed a soft smile on her face. He planned this. He planned this for them. This life in which she would escape to be a nun? What fate was this? Not hers. Good sir, sang out Elan Snakenborg as she and Anna threw the door open. I tire of window traffic. Next time come in by the front door. We will welcome a handsome lover like yourself. Charles recovered and acted the debonair. The love I bear, Mistress Stoner, is not that of some ordinary man. I wish it were. Constance thought. I wish it were ordinary love of this world. Sir Charles, Elan smirked, whether you be an ordinary or extraordinary lover, I leave that judgment to Mistress Constance. Your time is up. We ladies need our chamber. You, sir, must rearrange your doublet and kiss your sweetling goodbye. Charles shot Constance a charming wink. He kissed her hand, and with Elan fussing over him as he played his part, he was led out, laughing. Who says it's cushy to be a maid of honor? No, it's as if you have this somewhat ornamental job where death is on the line, or at least imprisonment. <laughs> it's hard to be at court. And at the opening of this chapter, Constance is attending a service at Whitehall that she feels is completely heretical, but she cannot get out of going. No, I mean, not attending would cause a scandal. She would lose her position, be fined, and maybe even serve time in prison. But being there is truly agony for her. Yeah. You know, it's it's truly agonizing because she has to engage in this service that she feels is going to send her to hell. Yes. You know, it's real. It's real. It's not just, it's not just, um, intellectual it's not just intellectual it's real for her and we've talked about the religious situation in england before but it is such an important backdrop it's it is the society at the moment and it just keeps coming up it just defines so many actions that everyone actually did in this time and what our characters do i mean it's really complicated and in 1565 the service that would be held at whitehall was an anglican service 
which is often called via media, or the middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. So the terms Anglican and Episcopal are both used to mean this same tradition. Right. I mean, just to add to the confusion, from what I understand, if it's in England, it's Anglican, and the Episcopal Church spread out from the Anglican Church into other countries. That's mm-hmm. what I understand, but you know, I may not be 100% correct about that. But anyway, by establishing this via media as the official church of the state when she took the throne in 1558, Elizabeth really hoped to kind of calm all this religious trouble because, you know, Henry VIII broke with Rome, then he died. Edward VI pushed the church further in the direction of Protestant reformers like Luther and Calvin, like, you know, really kind of hardline Protestants. Then Edward dies, and Mary I reverts to complete Roman Catholicism and, you know, veneration of the Pope. And then she dies, and Elizabeth is back in, and she settles on this Anglican, you know, kind of middle way. It must have been so hard for the people in England. Oh, uh, yeah. It's confusing to us. It's confusing to us. It must have been confusing to them, yeah, too. So yeah, so let's compare. Let's okay. compare Mary's Roman Catholicism, what we'll call, and what we'll call the Re- the Reformed Church, which was Edward VI's way, and Elizabeth's Anglicanism. So the three, the three main branches right now, the Catholicism, the Reformed Church, and the Anglicanism. Okay. So let's take a few precepts, and you can say who believes it and who does not. To the best of my knowledge. Yes, with the declaimer that we are not religious 16th century scholars. No, we don't. We know. No, we're not. We, we're not scholars of 16th century. We don't hold a doctorate in 16th century religion. But righto. Okay. Begin. Belief in the authority of the Pope. Edward, no. Elizabeth, no. Mary, Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> Believe that the communion wafer and wine transform into the blood and body of Jesus during the Mass. Mary, yes. Edward, no. Elizabeth, yes-ish. <laughs> we'll, we'll define that a little bit later on, but yes-ish. So saying the service... Or no-ish, whichever way you want to look at it. No, you're yeah. right. Saying the service in English and translating the Bible from Latin. Mary, no, no, no. Elizabeth and Edward, absolutely. Veneration of saints and saying the rosary. Mary, yes. Edward, completely prohibited. Elizabeth allowed some shrines to the Virgin and some people did say the rosary. Priests wearing vestments. Edward, absolutely not. Elizabeth, yes. She liked all that. Mary, yes. And what about the sacraments? So Mary had seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. Elizabeth and Edward only had two, baptism and the Eucharist. Priests can marry. Mary, oh no. Elizabeth, okay, but I don't want to have to pay for your dependents. And Edward, 
Sure. All right. So what about <laughs> belief in purgatory and the intercession of saints? Mary, yes. Edward and Elizabeth, no. So should we say that the intercession of saints was the belief that if you prayed to the saint, then the saint would talk to God? Right. So the Protestant idea is more that you have a direct line to, to God himself. And the Catholic idea is a little more that you have to go through other, um, you have to go through us a, a little bit of a hierarchy. So it, you you have to pray to the saints to speak to God on your behalf. So this intercession of saints is is praying to the Virgin to to sort of speak to God on your behalf. Mm-hmm. And the and Luther belo- believed that we have a straight line to God. We don't need this kind of hierarchy to get us to God. So. So and and Elizabeth believed that and Edward believed that but Mary believed in this intercession. So this little quiz doesn't show much of a middle way. Mm. It just shows how much more Elizabeth's church had in common with Edward's than with Mary's. When she took the throne Elizabeth I think reassured some people who were Catholic because she didn't go back to Edward's way and she made some compromises with Catholic doctrine and she stopped reforms that radical Protestants wanted, like getting rid of stained glass and statues, abolishing crucifixes, bells, incense, processions. And, you know, she allowed the use of palms on Palm Sunday and ashes on Ash Wednesday. She encouraged the use of ornate chalices during communion, things like that. I mean, you know, not to take anything away at all from the sort of religious importance of all these objects, but I think Elizabeth saw the value in the church, the church's grandeur. Mm. And, And she saw her, she saw the value of that in terms of her being part of that grandeur, you know, and I think that that was certainly not a Protestant idea. The Protestant idea was that things should be much more simple. These traditions, I think they were very important to people. The processions, the bells, the beautiful things to look at. And I actually believe they aren't ultimately just cosmetic. I think for many people, they took them away from everyday life. Absolutely. Historians say that Elizabeth's settlement allowed for a church that was Protestant in doctrine, but Catholic in appearance. And, you know, people take comfort in appearances. That seems like a correct way of understanding how Elizabeth did it because uh, a French ambassador wrote a... Dis- and a French, remember, French at this time would have been pretty devout Catholic. Yes, so, pretty yeah. devout Catholic. Um, and he he wrote about what it was like to attend an Anglican service in Elizabeth's court. And he said... As for the manner of their service in church and their prayers, except that they say them in the English tongue, one can still recognize a great part of the Mass, which they have limited only in what concerns individual communion. They sing the psalms in English, and at certain hours of the day, they use organs and music. The priests wear the hood and surplus. It seems, apart from the absence of images, that there is little difference between their ceremonies and those of the Church of Rome. So this French Catholic who's actually going to a service 
at the time and writing contemporaneously experienced a lot that looked like Catholicism to him. But not quite, because I think actually there's not the images of Christ on the crucifix. Yes, that's right. But, you know, still, I mean, good old Elizabeth, keeping everyone guessing exactly what her real convictions were. About religion, she famously said, quote, I have no desire to make windows into men's souls. So she left her subjects to their own interpretations of scripture. That quote always makes me think that what Elizabeth really meant was that she did not desire to have any man make a window into her. I think that is 100% true. And of course, not just about religion, but about so many aspects of her life. You know, being a little enigmatic was certainly one of her strengths. What she wanted was outward uniformity, an outward participation in the church's society. Yeah, and she wanted... She didn't just want that. She demanded it. I mean, let's let's not be, you know, let's let's be clear. I mean, Elizabeth wasn't letting everybody pursue religion the way they they wanted to. She demanded people did it her way. Every church in the country had to conform to this middle way of doing things. And all of her people, all of the courtiers and all of the subjects had to conform to this one form of worship. Everybody was required to attend the established church services at least once a week. And if you didn't, you were fined. How they kept track of who came and who didn't come, I guess. I don't know. I'm sure, I don't think they took a role, but I guess these were small parishes and people knew each other. So in 1558, the fine was 12 pence per offense. So it's really hard to equate modern money to Tudor money. But that could definitely add up, especially if you had to pay it every week. And that fine was for the first few offenses. After that, your lands could be seized, you could be sent to prison, and if you were a resident of London, you could be banished from the city, which effectively would end your livelihood and everything else. Yeah. So Elizabeth's intention was to find a balance between Catholicism and Protestantism, and she was successful in the sense that the majority of her people conformed. But the danger of this middle way was that, of course, it infuriated both strict Catholics and strict Protestants. This is always the problem, right, of trying to find the middle way. Yes. Those Protestants eventually came to be known as the Puritans, who accused Elizabeth of holding on to popish or popish superstitions. And then there were the angry Catholics like the Stoners, who, for all the Catholic traditions that Elizabeth kept in the Anglican Church, could not get over the actual doctrine which they believed to be heretical. And Constance isn't buying the service she has to go to. I mean, just the fact that it's in English completely disgusts her. She wants it to be in Latin, as it should be. And she has to pretend to venerate the first prayer book, or as it is known, the Book of Common Prayer. Which is still used. It's a complete liturgy for the Anglican Church. Thomas Cramner, the famous Protestant martyr, wrote and compiled it during Edward's reign. With the help of other reformers. So Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1533 until his death in 1555. And those were some tumultuous years with a lot of changes, right? And while, and after Henry died, 
Cranmer did support all of Edward's reforms, but he actually was one of those Protestants who, who wanted to go further. I think he thought the prayer book had compromises to the Catholics. Maybe too many. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he authorized the first two editions of the book, but Elizabeth made some changes as part of her religious settlement, and those were changes that Cranmer probably would not have approved of. Like allowing belief in the real presence of Christ during communion. Right, which was a nod to the idea, the Catholic idea, the Catholic conviction, let me say, that the body and blood actually transform into the body and blood of Jesus. Instead of the of communion only being a commemoration, as the Protestants believed. Right. And just, it was so heretical in the Catholics' mind because they thought if God created all of the universe and all of the earth, and how could you doubt that he could transform a bread and wine into the body and, you know, body and blood of Christ? Why was, would he have a limit? Yeah, why yeah. would that be, you know, but no, yes, I can make <laughs> all of the universe, but not that. So, But I guess it's also because, and I, I'm, I'm probably quoting it incorrectly, but I believe in one in one of the translations that I have heard used in the church that Jesus says, you know, when he breaks the bread and drinks the wine, he says, do this in remembrance of me. And the Protestants took that to mean that it was a commemoration, not an actual transformation. So, you know. That's true. But yeah. it also says in church, I've heard them say, um, take, eat, this is my body. That's true. I've heard the same you. thing. So it's all. <laughs> so, you know, I think, and these are translations. So I think you can right. easily find many things. Um, but anyway, you know. Elizabeth okayed, like, I, she okayed a hint of transmutation. Right. So the presence, but not the actual body. Body, right. Okay, I guess, sure, that's, I guess that's a compromise. Elizabeth also removed the prayers against the Pope that were in the first two editions of Cranmer's work. You know, it's hard for us to think that a religious tract read in a church and it would pray against the leader of another religion or actually another, um, another tenet of your own religion. But, you know... That, that's, as as you would say, my presentism. Yes, I mean, it's Because now we kind of want everyone to get, get along, yeah. you know? <laughs> it's hard for us to understand how much these two religious factions just hated each other yeah. and how much vengeance they took on each other. For hundreds of years. But there was so much back and forth in the years since Henry started the Reformation, the re the reverberations just went on and on. Yes, and, you know, it's interesting to think that with all this idea that we have of Henry being, you know, the founder of the Anglican Church, when Henry died, one of the things he asked for, one of the things he demanded, was that masses would be said for him every day, as long as the earth shall exist. So in other words, he wanted these masses to be said as an intercession for him to get out of purgatory and get to heaven. So, I mean, he, he, his, his last desires were 
extremely Catholic, even though he was the one who broke up the chantry houses and, you know, and hung these ma- these monks who would say these masses. So, of course, Edward didn't honor that, which is, again, is interesting because he didn't honor those last wishes because of his own convictions about about what what that would mean, right? Because Edward was a Protestant. So, no, but it is to your point that when these people, when Anne Boleyn is about to die or what people say on their deathbeds, I mean, it's very important. And if you look at that was Henry's choice at the end was not to say, I'm going to speak directly to God, but to return to this idea of asking for the prayers and to- intercessions. It's... It's pretty interesting. Right. And, you know, but of course, it didn't happen. And it's interesting, actually, that even when Mary the first came to the throne, she didn't start doing that for her father. But anyway, we'll have to do a little more research about that because it's an interesting moment. But, you know, Henry went back and forth and he, he took the country with him. And Thomas Cranmer's career is also a very good example of someone who started in one tradition and, and evolved into another tradition. Yes, because he was educated at Cambridge and he was ordained as a Catholic priest mm-hmm. in the 1520s. But then he came to Henry's attention because he suggested that instead of accepting the Pope's opinion on the annulment that Henry wanted from Catherine of Aragon, that the king should canvass other European theologians for their opinions. Right. So Cranmer knew that the king could take advantage of this anti-papal sentiment that was sweeping Europe because of Martin Luther's ideas. And Cranmer was a religious reformer. And the king did, as Cranmer suggested. And Cranmer became one of the team who produced the arguments from the university theologians in support of the idea that Henry had jurisdiction in his own realm above the Pope. Yes, right. So, And because of his help with this annulment, Cranmer got a lot of support from Anne and from the Boleyn family, and he was put forward to succeed the Archbishop of Canterbury, who died in 1533. And I think he also got Anne's support because of his reformist ideas. I mean, it gets lost in all the talk about Anne's charms mm-hmm. and her French manners, but Anne was genuinely interested in reforming the Catholic Church. That's 100% true. She was very religious. Everyone was surprised by this appointment to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, mm-hmm. even Cranmer himself, because he was relatively young and inexperienced. And he was being asked to fill the most important ecclesiastical position in England. But he took it. Yes. He didn't say, I'm not up for the job. <laughs> he sure did. And his connection with Anne continued. He crowned her queen mm. along with the Archbishop of York. He baptized Princess Elizabeth. And he stood as Elizabeth's godfather. And and he defended Anne during her downfall. He actually dared to write Henry a letter saying he didn't think Anne was guilty of adultery and treason. I mean, that's pretty unbelievable. It is. It really is. But he was the priest that Anne called for in her final days. And he heard her confession, which again is kind of a Catholic thing, even though they're Mm -hmm. all reformers, she still wanted to confess. And she maintained that she was innocent. 
And I believe her. Oh, I do Because too. I believe at that moment when she was facing death and she was a generally, genuinely pious person, and she thought she was going to her judgment, that she, I think, I believe that she was, that she was telling the truth. As we all know, she was executed two days later. And then Cranmer, who was one of the only people at court who openly mourned Anne. And he's the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he's mourning her openly. Yes. I mean, I wonder if Henry was a little infuriated with him. It'd be interesting to know. Henry was busy because <laughs> he, he was he about to get married He was busy, again. like, yes. smashing up all the... <laughs> H and A's that were all over the castle to, right. to change it. Yeah. And then Cranmer officiated at the wedding of Henry and Jane Seymour. Eleven days after Anne's execution. I mean, unbelievable. What a whirlwind of emotions mm-hmm. it must have been for Cranmer and actually the whole court and, in fact, the whole country. I, I, I agree. And after Henry's break from Rome... You know, Cranmer did make some reforms in the church, but certainly not as much as he would want to, because as we've said before, but it's really important to keep reiterating this. Henry was, besides the huge fact that he didn't recognize the Pope as his superior, still Catholic more than Protestant in his views and practices. He was against the worship of shrines of saints and dissolved the monastic houses. But actually, in doctrine, he was Catholic. It's so confusing because he's called the founder of the Anglican Church. And I mean, I guess that's true in the sense that it was a church separate from the authority of Rome, that it was the English church. But in actual doctrine and practices of the Anglican Church, Elizabeth seems to have had much more influence than Henry did. That's true. Henry did not seek a middle way between Catholicism and Protestantism. He did not want a radical reformation. And it's it's sort of it's it's interesting because Elizabeth, you know, kind of backed off of calling herself supreme head of the Church of England as Henry did. She settled on supreme governor because that seemed a more palatable title for a woman. Whereas of course Henry was <laughs> I don't think fine she felt she could call herself title, the head of yeah. the church. Yeah. Well, you know me, I'm always hating on Henry. But I, you know, I have to feel he was more interested in getting his way, claiming the wealth of the monastic houses, melting down the gold of St. Thomas Becket's shrine and other religious glories, and, you know, claiming himself as the head of the church than he was in reforming the church and making God's word accessible in English and, you know, kind of trying to democratize things. Oh, you Henry. (laughs) Yeah, it's guilty as charged. Guilty. But you're right. It wasn't until Edward VI's reign that the Church of England became more and more Protestant as we think of it Mm -hmm. now. With Edward's okay, Cranmer wrote the Book of Common Prayer in 1549. Right. And remember, Henry died in 1547. So, and then Cranmer revised the Book of Common Prayer in 1552, further into Edward's reign, you know, pushing religious reform a little further. And then, bam, Edward dies the next year. Mary is crowned queen after the whole Lady Jane Grey thing, which, of course, was because Edward wanted Wanted a Protestant ruler. So he tried to name his cousin so that he could continue these 
religious reforms. And I'm sure Cranmer supported Lady Jane Grey because he would have been very frightened of Mary. Yes. Yeah. And actually, Cecil was already on the scene. Yeah. He supported Lady Jane Grey because these people wanted a Protestant leader. But we know how that turned out. Because Mary, I don't know if it, I don't think they supported Mary because of her religion. I think they supported her because she was Henry's daughter. You mean the people? The people. Yeah. No, I agree. You know, it had to do with her legitimacy in their Mm -hmm. eyes, not with any belief she had. And then, of course, Cranmer is arrested and imprisoned. Right. Almost immediately after Mary's crowned. And in prison, you know, he recanted. His, his these Protestant reforms, and he reconciled himself to the Catholic Church, you know, and that actually should have saved him from further punishment because that's sort of the deal is they say either, you know, recant or we'll, we'll kill you. But in Cranmer's case, it did not save him. No. Mary is not Henry in terms of a temper that leads her to kill everyone. But in this particular case... Yeah, she was going to have him. She was going to have him. Mary loathed him. And she wanted him dead. I don't know if she wanted him burnt, but because... Well, that was the the punishment for a heretic, so... So she wanted him dead because he had led the charge to annul the marriage between her mother and Henry VIII. Mm -hmm. And also he was extremely close to Anne Boleyn, and she was definitely not forgiving that. No, and also Cranmer was Elizabeth's godfather. Right. So it was also a demonstration of Mary's power over Elizabeth. It was a way for Mary to settle a lot of old scores at once. And so he was burnt at the stake for heresy. Right, and she didn't even commute his sentence. I mean, no. he was burnt for heresy. So, And on the day of the burning, he made a speech that made him a Protestant, that made him a Protestant martyr for the ages. Right. He said, and now I come to the great thing which so much troubleth my conscience more than anything that ever I did or said in my whole life. And that is the setting abroad of a writing contrary to the truth, which now here I renounce and refuse, as things written with my hand contrary to the truth, which I thought in my heart, and written for fear of death. Wow. I think he had decided what he would say before he got to the public square. <laughs> I think I think he probably practiced it, right? Yeah. He didn't just come up with it on the spot. But it's a little confusing because it sounds like he's or it sounded to me the first time I read it like he's he was recanting the book of common prayer, but he's actually recanting the recantation he made in prison that he signed his name to that he was accepting Catholicism again. Making him a martyr would come back at the Catholics. In just two short years, Mary has died Mm -hmm. and Elizabeth comes to the throne. With the Book of Common Prayer, with a couple of revisions, and with her, you know, middle way. And maybe that was enough to please some people. 
I think it probably was because I think people were exhausted. And for the common people, they needed to get on with their lives, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and I think they just wanted some things that made them feel comfortable and other things. And, you know, and I think also we have to acknowledge that, you know, Luther's message of Reformation spread like wildfire through Europe and in, and in England because there were abuses going on in the Catholic Church that people felt and saw and, and objected to. But the stoners would have, I mean, the stoners were obviously, un, they couldn't accept this, these things. No, for someone like Constance who was raised with the idea that these differences of doctrine were satanic, they were evil. They were really things that could damage you. Yes. Things that could hurt you. Not yes. just, again, like not just, it's not just intellectual. It's, it's way more visceral and important. No, it's terrible to witness the change. Yeah, it's it's true. But then again, for all her religious convictions, even pious Constance can't get excited when Charles Paget comes through <laughs> her window and she expects him to kiss her and take her in his arms. And then he just tells her he wants her to be a celibate nun and he's going to be a priest. And they're going to go off and take holy orders. It's too much for her. No, she does not. That's just not what she wants. No. But so next episode, we'll follow Constance to the Arundel Inn, where she goes to confide in Philomena about Charles Paget's strange proposal. Leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. We love hearing from you. There's always a debate. There's always something interesting to write about. So join us next time for more Times Riddle and more Tudor-minded talk. Thank you.